All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I'm your host, Aaron Freeman, and today we're going to be talking about Tony Gonzalez entering the Hall of Fame, updating you on some injuries from over the weekend, as well as talking about what second-year player is going to need to step up in 2019. You are locked on Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. All right, guys, you know me. I'm Aaron Freeman. Been covering the Falcons for many, many years at FalcFans.com, on Twitter, at FalcFans, and, of course, the host of this preeminent Locked On Falcons podcast, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast. Today, we're going to be jumping in, talking a little bit about Tony Gonzalez. That's going to be our lead story, his induction into the Hall of Fame, as well as sort of... you know, maybe some future Hall of Famers from the Falcons that we can talk about. Then we'll get into sort of injury updates. We'll talk quite a bit more about the backup quarterback situation, uh, knowing that, you know, we've got a little bit of an update on, on Kurt Bankert and his injury and what does that mean for the Falcons' backup quarterback situation and Matt Schaub. And then we'll close things out by talking quite a bit about Calvin Ridley as sort of the preeminent uh, of this 2018 draft class that's going to need to have a big season in 2019 if this team is going to need to reach its you know the upper tiers of their goals and so that is what is on the docket today and now let's jump in to your locked on Falcons lead story I'm Aaron Freeman the Atlanta Falcons faithful got to witness the induction of former Falcons tight end Tony Gonzalez over the weekend on Saturday night Gonzalez was one of many inducted on Saturday night and closed out the show with his speech. Gonzalez spent five years with the Falcons from 2009 to 2013, closing out an NFL career after spending 12 seasons with the Kansas City Chiefs beginning in 1997. Gonzalez ended his career as the all-time leader in catches, yards, and touchdowns among tight ends. He also finished his career second in receptions, six in yards, eighth in receiving touchdowns for all receivers. Over the course of 17 seasons, Gonzalez earned 14 Pro Bowl appearances, six first-team All-Pros, and four of those Pro Bowls and one of those All-Pros came during his five-year stint with the Atlanta Falcons. Gonzalez endeared himself to both Kansas City and Atlanta fan bases, not only with his production, but his hard work and charismatic personality on and off the field uh, he put fully on display during his Hall of Fame induction speech. Gonzalez spent several minutes thanking various coaches, teammates, friends, and family dating back to his peewee football playing days, giving shout-outs to Falcons quarterback Matt Ryan, wide receivers Julio Jones and Roddy White, as well as former Falcons head coach Mike Smith, former Falcons tight ends coach Chris Skelfo, and current Falcons GM Thomas Dimitrov. Then Gonzalez shared several anecdotes from his playing days dating back as far as his teenage years as well as in college. One of those anecdotes was going back to his time as a teenager where he was constantly being harassed by a bully and eventually learned to never live in fear. Gonzalez is one of several recent Falcon players to be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Former Falcons cornerback Deion Sanders was inducted in 2011 and defensive end Claude Humphrey was inducted in 2014. The Pro Football Hall of Fame announced that they will be expanding next year's class to 20 people as part of the NFL celebration of their upcoming 100th season. The 20-person group will include five modern-day players, 10 seniors, three contributors, and two coaches. With the increased number of seniors, 
there was an opportunity for some longtime Falcon greats to get potentially inducted and finally get their just due and recognition from the hall. Chief among those are former Falcons offensive tackle Mike Ken and linebacker Tommy Nobis. Ken spent 17 years playing for the Falcons from 1978 to 1994. During that time, he was named to five Pro Bowls and was a two-time All-Pro. He wound up starting 251 games over the course of his NFL career. And at the time of his retirement, that was the second most in NFL history that since has been surpassed by 10 players, many of whom are Hall of Famers, including Gonzalez. Ken was also heavily involved in labor relations throughout the 80s and 90s and served as NFLPA president from 1989 to 1996. Despite his longevity, Ken spent a large portion of his career playing in relative obscurity thanks to uh, thanks in part to the limited success of the Falcons in the latter portion of his career. Nobis, also known as Mr. Falcon, was the team's first ever draft selection, being selected number one overall in the 1966 NFL Draft after an illustrious playing career at the University of Texas. Nobis went out on to play 11 outstanding seasons with the Falcons from 1966 to 1976. During his career, he earned four Pro Bowls, one All-Pro, and was named NFL Rookie of the Year in 1966, overshadowed by future Hall of Fame linebackers and contemporaries like Dick Buckus, Dave Wilcox, and Willie Lanier. Much like Ken, Nobis never got his just due simply for playing on a series of bad Falcon teams in the late 60s and early 70s that never managed to qualify for the playoffs during Nobis' career. After his playing days, Nobis went on to spend several decades as a member of the Falcons organization and working in their front office. Unfortunately, Nobis passed away at the age of 74 in 2017. He left behind a legacy of greatness on and off the field, and it would be a great honor to have him, Ken, and many others elsewhere in the league enshrined as one of the greatest football players ever in the league's centennial class of 2020. So we're going to come back and talk a little bit about the final open practice and get some energy injury updates from over the weekend. But uh, before we get there, I want to remind you guys that fantasy football players, you need to make sure that you are listening to Vinny Iyer in the Locked On Fantasy Football Podcast. Vinny gives you the edge with over 20 years of covering fantasy football. Don't listen to the same stuff from everybody else. Get the edge with Vinny. That will put you ahead on draft day and continue to put you ahead all season long. Find Locked On Fantasy Football Podcasts on your favorite podcast provider, including Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So NFL players have put in quite a lot of work this offseason. Now that the offseason is over, we're seeing the results of their enhanced and increased performance on the field, such as in the Hall of Fame game this past week. But you too can enhance and increase your performance and show the work that you've put in and gain that extra confidence in the bedroom by checking out BlueChew.com. That's blue like the color. BlueChew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. Take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they'll work up to twice as fast as a pill. BlueChew is prescribed online. It ships straight to your door in a discreet package, so no in-person doctor's visits, no waiting in line at the pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkwardness. Blue Chew is made in the USA, and since it's prepared and shipped direct, it's cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now, you can take advantage of this special offer by visiting BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code Locked On. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E, Chew.com, promo code Locked On to try it for free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, and faster choice. 
So Sunday was Military Appreciation Day. It was the last open practice of the summer. Uh, the Falcons played this out in front of the home crowd at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Uh, the notable thing is we got some injury updates from the Hall of Fame game. We saw some guys sit out this uh, last open practice with some injuries as the Falcons get prepared for their upcoming matchup against the Dolphins later this week on Thursday night. Uh, James Carpenter left practice with a hip flexor. Uh, Foya Olakun was held out with a strained oblique muscle. Uh, Duke Riley continues to be held out with his hip flexor groin issue. Uh, Marcus Green, who suffered a hamstring injury, and Rashid Hageman, who suffered a groin injury last Thursday, uh, also were held out of practice. Desmond Trufant had a slight back strain, according to Dan Quinn. He was also held out of practice. And, of course, Julio Jones, Deion Jones, and Calvin Ridley continue to be sidelined and limited uh, due to the foot injuries for the both the joints bullies and the hamstring injury for a Ridley uh, at this point in time. Uh, we got an, a slight update on Kurt Banker. We don't know full extent of his injury quite yet, but we understand that it is major from multiple sources. Dan Quinn said he's going to be out for a while. Ian Rappaport said it's a major injury. Um, someone on Twitter told me it was a dislocated toe. I haven't heard any confirmation of that, so that's just Twitter hearsay as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Dr. David Chow, a.k.a. the Pro Football Doc on Twitter, said it was significant based off of the video evidence, and it potentially could result in a season-ending surgery for uh, Kurt Bankert. Uh, when um, Quinn said that Bankert was seeking a second opinion, um, that was ominous because, you know, history, at least my observational history, and again, I'm not an expert on this, that generally generally speaking, players seek second opinions from doctors because they're trying to avoid season-ending surgery. Like the first doctor tells them, we're going to have to have surgery on this and you're going to be done for the season. And then they go to another doctor hoping that they're going to be like, no, you don't need season-ending surgery. Maybe we'll do something that's not necessarily, that's going to keep you out for, I don't know, X number of months. Uh, you know, remember this was a similar situation that happened with Desmond Trufant back in 2016, where he was sort of seeking a, a second opinion during that time and then eventually got shut down for the season. So, you know, hearing that is is not usually a sign of good news. And so that does put the Falcons potentially with a little bit of an issue at the backup quarterback position that presumably means that, you know, Matt Schaub at this point until the Falcons make another roster move is going to be the uncontested backup quarterback for the team moving forward. Uh, the team did wind up picking up Matt Sims over the weekend. They made a series of other roster moves following Thursday's game, uh, shaking up their secondary a bit. They brought in safety Ronald Martin, formerly of the Jets. They brought in cornerback Hamp Cheevers, who was an undrafted free agent uh, early this offseason with the Titans. Uh, to make room for all three of those moves, they wound up cutting long snapper Kyle Vasey, safety Jason Thompson, and cornerback Rashad Causey. Um, Sims is a name that many of you recognize. He was with the Falcons from 2015 to 2016, spent the first two of those years on the team's practice squad, then got injured in the summer of 2017. He was most recently with the Atlanta Legends of the AAF, uh, did not play particularly well with the Atlanta team during the spring. He does know the scheme reasonably well, you know, uh, and so it does seem like the Falcons are looking more for guys that are known options. Uh, you know, I on Friday I, I talked, you know, in defense of Matt Schaub to a certain extent. I will continue to defend Matt Schaub in certain capacity in the sense of, um, you know, I think when you go back and watch the game, the main issue with Schaub was pressure. It doesn't excuse him. It doesn't excuse his poor play. He did play poorly, but I'm not going to sit here 
and you know, I'm not necessarily blaming Shab's poor performance on the pressure. I'm just I'm blaming Shab's poor performance on not responding well to the pressure. According to Pro Football Focus, Shab was pressured on 57% of his dropbacks. You know, I think that number might be a little low. That might be the low end of the spectrum. But, uh, you know, normal amount of pressure a quarterback is going to face, even in preseason games, is usually about 25 to 30%. And, you know, you look back at last summer, uh, in that first game, Schaub was pressured on 44% of his dropbacks, but still managed to go 4 for 4. And, in fact, you know, per pro football focus, Schaub had the highest uh, completion percentage for the Falcons last summer, completing 87.5% of his passes under pressure. Um, compare that to Kurt Bankert, who only completed 36% of his passes in the summer of 2018. Um, now you fast forward to 2019, and Schaub only completed one of eight of his passes under pressure on Thursday. Um, you know, But I, I, again, I, it's not to sit here and be like, oh, Schaub, it wasn't Schaub's fault, it was the pressure. No. Again, it was Schaub's fault he did not respond well to the pressure that he did see. He saw too much pressure, but that's not an excuse to not make better throws. And and I think the, the key for me, at least, is you got to evaluate the player. And when you evaluate the player, um, we need to see if Schaub improves against pressure over the next four games, that he's probably going to play a lot more football because what other options do the Falcons have unless they basically intend to have Matt Sims play, you know, 10 quarters over the next four weeks. Um, so, you know, if Schaub does improve and does a better job handling pressure in these upcoming over the next month, that's a positive sign. If he does not, um, you know, I don't know what the Falcons alternatives are in terms of bringing in new talent. We'll talk about that in a second. But the main thing is if they do decide to find themselves in a situation where Matt Schaub is coming into the game for Matt Ryan during the regular season, it's going to have to change how they call the game. And, you know, if he can't handle pressure and get into your sort of standard drop back passing game, and if he doesn't have a completely clean pocket and he can't make those throws in that situation, the Falcons are going to have to change their play calling, um, you know, which, you know, may mean shorter throws, shorter drops, and they're getting the ball out quicker, more wide receiver screens, which I know Dirk Cutter's certainly a fan of. Uh, but at the same time, it may put more emphasis on the Falcons and their play action and their rollout game and bootlegs and all these various things because you don't want to get Schaub into a straight drop back uh, situation because he's you know too much of a statue in the pocket, uh, not being able to handle that. And you know that you know there's evidence to suggest that that may not be something that Cutter is Cutter is necessarily enthusiastic about calling. But, you know, I know a lot of people are like, you know, the Falcons need to bring in a new quarterback. And I understand that sentiment fully. Um, but I also understand why the Falcons aren't necessarily bringing in a new quarterback. You know, I'm not necessarily advocating either way on this regard. Um, but I think, you know, the Falcons basically are taking the tack of trying to get some new guy up to speed in this offense over the next three to four weeks. Um is probably not worthwhile. And then you look around the league and it's like, who is that player going to be? Is it going to be Connor Cook or Matt Castle or Brandon Whedon or Brock Osweiler or Josh Johnson or Landry Jones? I mean, do you look at any of those guys as better options than Matt Schaub at this point in time? Uh, particularly given the fact that Matt Schaub, you know, is well-versed in this offense. And, you know, I think, you know, you look around the league, and this has been a, a point I've made in the past of why the Falcons continue to give Matt Schaub opportunities. 
is because you look around the league and there's just not that many quality backup quarterbacks. Maybe some good quarter, good young stud will become available. I'm looking at you, Kyle um, you know, at the end of, of the summer with waiver wire and whatnot. But you continue to see the Matt Barkleys and the Mike Glennons and the A.J. McCarrens and the Tom Savages and the Paxton Lynch get opportunity after opportunity. And that's evidence of the fact that, generally speaking, around the league, you know, finding capable quality backup quarterbacks is hard to do. And that's why teams keep turning to these guys that most of us would sit here and, and agree. It's like, these guys aren't good. These are not players that you want playing and starting games for you. So I think the Falcons have basically taken the tack that Matt Schaub is the devil that they know, and they're willing to roll with that. The lesser of two evils, I guess, another way of saying it. So um, I, I'm sure plenty of people don't agree with that. Um, but that seems to be the the tactic that they're going with, and we'll have to sort of see if they, you know, if their patience in Shab, if he does improve over the next couple of, of games, then you know, then that patience will pay off. If he doesn't, then you know, that's a situation that the Falcons are going to have to address at the end of the summer and going into the season. So we'll come back and talk a little bit about. We'll answer a listener question about which second year player needs to make the most impact this upcoming year. But I want to let you guys know that the new Locked On NFL podcast is on fire. Last week, it was one of the most listened to NFL shows out there with expert analysis of former NFL scout Matt Williamson and hosted by Brian Peacock. Locked On NFL is your daily national podcast on all things NFL with Matt's unique take on the game. Follow Locked On NFL now on your favorite podcast provider, including Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So Mantis Toboggan MD at Sebastian's Dad 19, you told to change your Twitter handle. I didn't notice that. Um, sent in a question uh back on July 25th that I put in my back burner and was like, oh, I'll get to it eventually. I thought I would get to it at some point last week and I didn't get to it. I'm sorry, Mantis Toboggan. And you'll understand why, you know, me not getting to it sooner messes up when I read the question. Uh, so without further ado, he sent in the question. His question is, which second-year player do you see making the most impact? And also, can you tell me if there is anything I should watch closely for in this Hall of Fame game this upcoming Thursday? So I can't answer your second question. Missed the boat on that one. Uh, you saw, and you know, I'll just use hindsight and be like, yeah, you should pay attention to Kurt Benkert and John Kaminsky and Matt Schaub and Yurik Bethune and Chris Lindstrom and um, you know, whoever else stood out or did not stand out in the game, you know, Sean Harlow struggled. Yeah. Th- those are the things that you need to pay attention to. So, uh, but to answer your, your first question, you know, I think Ridley's the obvious answer. That's going to be the, uh, the answer I'm going to give, but you can make a compelling argument for Isaiah Oliver, you know, particularly if you're of the opinion that, you know, in the cover where you land on the coverage versus pass rush importance debate, you know, if you're siding on the coverage side of the argument, then I think you can make a very compelling case that Isaiah Oliver is critical um, to this team's defensive success and him having an impact, a big impact this year is going to be critical to this defense reaching its full potential. However, you guys know me. I've been pretty consistent on this. I think the Falcons are going to be, their season is going to be made or broken by their offensive success this year. Again, not to sit here and, and be dismissive and say the defense doesn't matter or anything like that, but I think primarily the offense is driving the bus here. If the Falcons are going to win 10 or 11 games this year, it's going to be because they have a top five offense. If they don't win that many games, 
I think it's probably going to be because they don't have a top five offense or a top seven offense or whatever that number is, but certainly at the top end of this league where they're a high, high achieving offense. And so for that reason, I think um, Calvin Ridley is the answer. I'm a firm believer that the Falcons are at their best when they are basically a pick your poison type of offense, when they're able to spread the ball around to multiple playmakers and not be focused and primarily on, on Julio Jones. You know, I've gotten into recent arguments over the last week or so with, with a certain person on Twitter um, who has been a guest on, on, on previous fan talk on the show. Um, you know, and he, he is of the opinion that, you know, Devontae Freeman in the Falcons rushing attack is more critical to this team's success uh, in 2019 than necessarily Calvin Ridley. Um, I obviously disagree with that person. You know, it's not to be dismissive and say the running game doesn't matter, but it is one of those things where I do think the running game is is massively inflated in terms of its importance in terms of determining what a team's ceiling is being and certainly what is determining a, a team's offense is being. And, you know, some of the evidence, you know, you know me, I'm all about explosives. I'm all about basically big plays equals points, but I'll give you a couple examples from 2018. You know, you go during that five-game losing streak from week 10 to week 14, and you compare that with the five previous games that the Falcons have played, just to give you an evil example. So from weeks four to nine, the Falcons' offense generated 25 20-plus yard plays, 25 big plays. They scored seven touchdowns on those 25 plays. You look at the spread of it, it's Julio Jones had seven of those, Sanu, Ridley, and Hooper each had four, Tevin Coleman had three, Marvin Hall had one, Ito Smith had one, and Devontae Freeman even had one. Uh, You look at the five games from weeks 10 to week 14 where the Falcons lost five straight, they only had 13 big plays and only scored one touchdown on those plays. Julio had nine, Ridley had three, and Sanu had one. Okay, clearly it's all concentrated in the Julio factor versus the previous five weeks. Then you contrast that with the final three games of the season where the Falcons had 18 big plays, including five touchdowns. Tevin Coleman had five. Julio had three. Sanu had three. Um, uh, Brian Hill had three. Austin Hooper had two. Ridley had one. Russell Gage had one. Again, I don't think it's a coincidence that when you look at this time period with the Falcons' success and failure with their offense being able to generate a large amount of points, oftentimes thus allowing the team to win a large percentage of those games, um, you see this sort of spread of multiple playmakers getting involved with the offense. And so it's a, you know, again, it goes back to what I said, pick your poison type of offense. And the reason why I think Calvin really is so critical to that is because the other players, the, the you know, besides Julio Jones, you know, Sanu is not necessarily known as a playmaker. As you saw during portions of the season, when Sanu was making plays, the Falcons offense benefited. But the problem is that's not really been Sanu's forte over the course of his career. You look at the three years where Sanu has been a Falcon, he's had 192 catches, but that's only resulted in 23 20-plus yard plays. That means about 12% of his of his of all his catches result in big plays. You compare that, obviously, to a player like Julio Jones, 26% of his catches over the last three seasons have resulted in big plays. You look at Calvin Ridley last year, 17% of his catches in 2018 resulted in big plays. But you look at that seven-game span from week two to week nine when the Falcons were averaging 31 points a game, it was about 21% of his big play of his catches resulted in big plays. Compare that, in fact, to Julio Jones, where it, during that same seven-game span, it was actually 18%. So in terms of who was generating more big plays on a per-catch basis, 
over that seven game span where the Falcons offense was averaging 31 points, which is, you know, good enough to basically be one of the top three offenses in the league. And obviously you want to sustain that over 16 games rather than just seven games. Calvin Ridley was more of a playmaker than actually Julio Jones was. And so to me, that's the thing where it's like Calvin Ridley, if you're going to get somebody else consistently involved as a playmaker in this offense, more often than not, it's going to be Calvin Ridley. Again, that's not meant to be a knock on Muhammad Sanu. It's just, that's just not where his bread is buttered. Muhammad Sanu is more of a, let's move the chains. Let's be a factor in the red zone. Certainly let's get the 12 gauge going, which again is magnificent. And, you know, one of the topics that we haven't talked about is whether Dirk Cutter is going to scrap the 12 gauge. And if he does, I'm going to hate Dirk Cutter. For, I'm going to drive up to Dirk Cutter's house and I'm going to punch him in the face because that's like the best thing that Muhammad Sanu brings to the table. And you know, if I'm saying that, that means it's very valuable, but that's neither here nor there. And so to me, like you look at that seven game span from week two to week nine, um, if the Falcons had gone five and two and six and one during that span, rather than four and three, like they did because they choked against the Bengals and Saints, you know, I don't think I would be even, this would be a matter of debate. People would just sort of like, yeah, the Falcons offense was at its best when Calvin Ridley and all these other guys were really involved in their offense and, and everything was clicking in, you know, during that time, the Falcons really weren't effective running the football and all that sort of thing. And so like, to me, I look at this upcoming season, let's say Calvin Ridley catches 80 passes, right? Let's say, he get, you know, he gets thrown the ball 120 times, catches 80 passes, which is an improvement on this past year. Let's say he catches... The same percentage of his catches result in big plays that they did last year, about 17%. That would be about 13.6 20-plus yard plays. That's about on par with what Jarvis Landry put up last year, which is, again, Jarvis Landry is not known for being this explosive player. Good player, solid, possession receiver, yeah, but not explosive player. Now, let's say it, you improve Ridley to that 21% rate that he had during that seven-game span when the Falcons' offense was clicking at its most effective uh, at least in the early portion of the season to the final three games, that would be about on par with what Odell Beckham did last season. Okay. If you can even get more than 21% of it, that's putting him on par with basically what the Rams receivers, particularly a player like Robert Woods was. And I, and I bring up the Rams because obviously they were one of the best offenses in the league last year, but you look at the percentage of their catches that were big plays for all their receivers. Robert Woods, it was 23%. Brandon Cooks, it was 27.5%. Cooper Cup, it was 22.5%. Then when Cooper Cup got hurt midway through the season and Josh Reynolds stepped into the lineup, for him it was 21%. And so what you're seeing again is this clear-cut evidence that the best offenses in the league, the what the Rams are basically the best version of the offense that the Falcons are going to try to run this year, which is that Shanahan play-action heavy offense uh, with a, again, for all you run game enthusiasts, with a very healthy run game, one of the healthiest run games in the league. If, you know, if not number one, it's, it's certainly in the top two or three. Um, you know, that's really the best case version of that offense. And it's primarily driven by their ability to dial up explosive plays through the air. And I, again, I know there are going to be other people saying, no, it's, it's driven by Todd Gurley and, and his running game. But then it's like, well, they were still explosive when Todd Gurley was hurt, at least through a portion of the playoffs. Then they ran into the buzzsaw known as Bill Belichick, and Bill Belichick is going to completely break your offense, as he's wont to do. But, you know, C.J. Anderson was doing just as fine as as Todd Gurley was, at, at least over a limited sample size, which, again, I think speaks to sort of how you can 
you know, I don't, I want to go into it. I'll let it go. I'll let that slide. But I'm not here to debate what running game and its importance. But one of the issues, again, it goes back to one of, to me, the topics that has been largely glossed over with Dirk Cutter has been, you know, if you believe like I believe, which, again, I know some of you d- don't believe in this, but if you believe like I believe that the offenses are dri- primarily dr- driven by their ability to generate explosive plays, when you look at Cutter's history, that's not really been sort of his forte. When you look at the Bucks' offense when they were being called by Cutter in 2016 and 2017, they were actually the third worst offense in the NFL in terms of generating explosive plays. Now you look at 2015, they were in the top five, and then you go look at 2018 when Todd Monken took over the offense. Again, they were one of the top offense in terms of generating explosive plays. And then you look at that 2015 season in Tampa Bay, it was primarily driven by Mike Evans, Vincent Jackson, and Doug Martin. That was the most explosive season Doug Martin had had. That was the last really good year that, uh, or the last decent year that Vincent Jackson had as a starter in the league. And then he was basically out of the league after 2016. And then Mike Evans, of course, Mike Evans being Mike Evans, that was really the beginning. Well, not really his rookie season. He had a great, a, a really good rookie season, but you know, that was really a, a, a really solid year for Mike Evans in terms of generating plays. He didn't score a lot of touchdowns that year though. Um, and then you go back to the previous year with with Atlanta with Dirk Cutter. That was the most explosive offense that the Falcons had in the three years under Dirk Cutter. But in that 2014 season, it was primarily driven by Julio Jones. Julio Jones generated the vast majority, and it looked more like that offense in, during that five-game losing streak that I cited before, where it was just like Julio Jones was generating all the big plays, and you got a couple from Hester, you got a couple from Douglas, you got a couple from this guy or that guy, but it was primarily a Julio-driven offense. And so this is going to be the big question to me with Dirk Cutter this season. Do we see that 2014 offense? And if we do, that to me is going to be a problem because we need to see this offense be able to spread the football around and be able to generate big plays from a multitude of playmakers. We need to see Hooper involved. We need to see Ridley, Gage, Hardy, Ito Smith, Brian Hill, Quadri Olison, Devontae Freeman, and of course, the great Muhammad Sanu. Um, and we need to see all these guys involved in the offense and being this pick-your-poison offense so that teams can't just basically concentrate on Julio Jones. Because again, contrary to popular opinion, yeah, Julio Jones puts up numbers, guys. But if he's the only guy that you got to worry about stopping, it's not that hard to stop him. We've seen that over time, over the last five, six years in Atlanta, that when it's just basically Julio Jones carrying the Falcons offense on his back and nobody else is stepping up. That's a middling team. That's a seven and nine. That's an eight and eight team. That's a six and 10 Falcons team because that's just not a team. That's a real powerhouse. You know, that's a team that's an also ran. Um, and when the team is able to spread the ball around to multiple playmakers, as we saw during portions of the 2018 season, as we saw throughout the 2016 season, that is a dynamic offense that has the potential to really make a deep, deep run in the postseason because they're so difficult to defend. Um, and so that to me is the big question with Dirk Cutter. Does his offensive system, is the Dirk Cutter that we've seen throughout his history, which again is not a guy that's known for implementing and designing these really explosive offense, is that the guy that shows up this year? Because if that's the guy that shows up this year, then, you know, we're going to be limping our way into the postseason, much like 2017. And then we're going to be talking about the Isaiah Olivers in this Falcons defense, like we saw two years ago in 2017, where it's going to be really on the defense's ability to basically 
you know, fill the gap because we're no longer one of the best offenses in the league. And instead of being a, a team that's in the conversation of being one of the five, seven best offenses in the league, we're like we were in, in 20, throughout a large portion of 2017 where we were in the conversation for being middling. Again, I know it was a little bit more complicated than that. And I know from a per-drive basis, the Falcons' offense was far more efficient in 2017 than than the final numbers indicated. I, I get it all that. But you know what I'm talking about. That's going to be the situation for this Falcon team this upcoming season. So, again, I think Calvin Ridley is going to be the guy that primarily drives that. He's going to be the most reliable option in a, on a week-to-week basis in terms of generating those big plays. And so there's going to be some weeks where you're not going to get Sanu and Hooper and, and Gage and, and and Freeman and all these other guys involved. And it's going to be primarily like, okay, Julio's going to get his. He's going to get his two to three plays. Who else is going to get the two to three plays that we need to be, you know, that potent offense? And I'm looking at you, Calvin Ridley. And to me, if Cutter can basically get Calvin Ridley into that role where he can look like essentially an Odell Beckham or Robert Woods to, you know, Julio's Julio, or in this case, Julio's Brandon Cooks, if that's what you're going to compare them to, then that to me is really when the Falcons offense really unlocks its true potential. And that's an offense, again, that I think can make a deep run in the postseason. And thus, we're not going to be that worried about what, how many sacks Vic Beasley gets. That way, we're not going to be necessarily needing Isaiah Oliver to come out and play like a top you know, 15 cornerback right out of the gates. We're not going to necessarily need all these things to go our way on defense um, if we can get that type of offense uh, you know, production from our offense this year. That's going to basically offset most, if not all of our issues, like we saw in that 2016 season. So that's sort of where I come on it. Mantis Toboggan, I know, you know, you probably could have just answered that with a three-second thing. Oh, it's Calvin Ridley and and left it at that. But I really wanted to explain that. And that's why I've been big on the we got to unlock Calvin Ridley uh, thing. Because, again, I think most weeks we're going to have to rely on Calvin Ridley to sort of be the poison to opposing teams if teams are going to have to pick their poison because, you know, Julio's going to get his, but it's really about stopping the other guys. And again, I think, again, this is no not meant to any disrespect to players like Sanu and Hooper. That's just not really what they do. They're not big time playmakers in that regard. And, and again, that's one of the reasons why I'm not in favor of the Marvin Hall thing is not to sit here and say that Marvin Hall was going to come out here and be this world class, you know, Taylor Gabriel 2.0 or or whatever the case may be or Brandon Cooks 2.0 or anything like that but it was one of those things that because you're not going to get a couple of those plays like we got from Marvin Hall throughout uh 2018 and as well as 2017 that now someone else is going to have to step up and, and make those plays and is that Russell Gage I don't know that remains to be seen for me um so we'll have to sort of see and uh, if we if we get that, then obviously I think the sky's the limit for this Falcon team. So there you have it, guys. I appreciate you tuning in for, you know, this episode. We'll be back with more conversation. Hopefully I will have a guest on tomorrow to talk a little bit more about Thursday night's uh, Hall of Fame game as well as uh, the uh, Hall of Fame induction ceremony. And then probably Wednesday or Thursday we'll have another crossover and uh, then, of course, we'll close out the week with the rapid reaction on Friday and uh, whatever we got to do the other day. Maybe if you guys want to send in questions, of course, you could do so. Locked on Falcons is the Twitter page. Locked on Falcons is the Facebook page. And, of course, the email address is lockedonfalcons at mail.com. If you want to send in those questions, just like Mantis Toboggan, for a future Q&A that could come later this week or could come 
early next week if I don't have anything else to talk about over the weekend, which is probable. So, you know, send in those questions. Send in whatever feedback you have. All right, guys. And uh, you know where to hit me up on the Lockdown Falcons podcast, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, of course, the Himalaya podcast app. And when you get in your car, tell your smart device to play podcast Lockdown Falcons. I'll be right there with you for the drive. Until then. You are Locked On Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.